Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Hi and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host, along with Dr. Tim Hayes, and we welcome you to the show. Today is Friday, August the 28th, 2015. Our call-in number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions, because that makes this your show. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Michael. Well, we're here, and all systems rock and roll, actually. Packing up to head to Branson to do a conference there with a advertising agency. And move the work, work forward to still another group of people on planet Earth, which is always an awesome and fabulous opportunity. And we're delighted to have this opportunity to be sharing the work with you, with each and every one of you, and are honored that you chose to take some time and join us. And I'd like to, uh, to offer a, uh, a quick hello to the uh, support group in Pahrump, Nevada. They're going to be listening to the show tonight, and uh, I got a call from Dr. Andraki, and their topic tonight is going to be the topic of love, and so we had a request from Dr. Andarki to just uh, have a conversation around this whole idea of what we mean by love. Of course, we live in a culture that uses that word very, very loosely, to say the least, and the word is thrown around in all kinds of areas and arenas there's an interesting principle that's put forward by Vladimir Lenin, the author of the death of many, 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 many people. And he says that if you can change the meaning of a culture's words, you can destroy that culture. And the reason for that is because the minute that you attach in your mind meanings to a word that don't belong to that word, you render yourself unable to logically and rationally think about 
or perceive that topic and or to have intuition feed you directly accurate and correct information about that topic. So getting that request from Dr. Androcki, I decided to uh, to pick up uh, my book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, which you can download free on our website. Just go to www.whyagain.org and oh, half a dozen or so different languages. You can download the book free, and there's a chapter, chapter 18, on clarifying love. If you're not familiar with the book, it's a conversation between myself and this recalcitrant kind of guy named Richard who doesn't want to hear anything that I'm talking about. He's on his third divorce, and he's just heading out of Dodge and knows he just needs to get rid of those women that are the problem in his life, and then everything will be okay. So in Chapter 18, we've talked about love earlier, and we're going to go back and cover that topic in a little more detail. So this is a conversation between Richard and I. So Richard and I went back to our discussion on love. I put forward the thought that one of the keys to the healing process is clarifying the idea of love, which has been ill-defined, misused, and distorted. Cleaning up its definition in our minds is an important piece of foundational work. 2,000 years ago, we were taught that love was the most important law to human existence. It must come first if intelligence is to be maintained. Teaching love is not religious. It is the most practical thing in the world. And, of course, we talked about this, uh, this idea in the early part of yesterday's show on rachma, which is the word that the Greeks, at least one of the words that the Greeks have translated as love, but there's a different idea in the Aramaic than the one that the Greeks gave us. So I go on to say to Richard, teaching love is not religious, it's the most practical thing in the world. One of the major pitfalls we humans have fallen into is that of making any teaching on love sound like religion. Many people have thrown out teachings based on love or only given them lip service because they think those teachings are religion, which they've been suddenly taught to reject. Richard thought that the ideas on love sounded good, but wanted to know how to love someone who'd just been abusive to him. He said in an exasperated tone, who could feel anything but anger and hate in that situation? My response was, to love, you must first straighten out your definition of the word. This may sound trite, Richard, but the people who can feel love when attacked know what love is and do not have realities called anger or hate in them. But, but, Richard interjected, stay with me for a minute. Remember, our goal is to let go of the old beliefs and manipulative teachings long enough to hold on and to build some new brain cells. If, when I'm finished, what I've said doesn't make sense, throw it out and go back to your old ways. Love in Aramaic does not mean cooperate with and help the person who's beating up on you. It does not mean accept every atrocity with a smile and pretend that all is well when it is not. Love does not mean that you don't hold people accountable for the behavior. Love is not a passive state of suppressing your anger so you look like a saint, I reported Ah, so it's okay to get angry with someone who abuses you, Richard said gleefully. I thought so. The reality in your head is giving you information not delivered by my words. It's okay to get angry with someone if you want your mind to be stupid while you interact with them, I replied. What's that supposed to mean, Richard almost shouted. It sounds like you're playing games with you and I don't like it. Well, there's an old saying that the truth will set you free, but first it's going to bring up all of your anger and rage, I said half-jokingly in an attempt to lighten the energy a little. Richard, the word love in this culture has been so distorted that its true meaning is almost lost. 
Much of the entertainment industry would have us believe that love is sexual athletics and satiation. Others would have us believe that it's self-denial and sacrifice. Still others would have us think that we show love by receiving their abuses graciously. Think about it. Who has something to gain by our believing those bizarre definitions of love? I can almost hear brain churning in search of an answer. I'm not sure what you mean. If I believe love is sexual athletics as portrayed on the screen, I suggested, might I pay for more sick and bizarre movies and demand more intense sexuality in order to be satiated? Might I think that what is played out in the movies is normal and try to live up to the, the reality I've come to believe is true? Might I find myself wanting to participate in the outrageous habits for which much of the entertainment industry is famous? We need to recognize, rise, excuse me, we need to recognize, Richard, that fulfilling outrageous fantasies will never satisfy us. It will only lead to even more bizarre behaviors. Until we do, we'll continue to repeat those behaviors wondering, is that all there is? What's wrong with me? If we hold painful realities in our minds, it does not matter how many of the quote-unquote rewards based on an incorrect understanding of life we receive, happiness will still elude us. No matter how many possessions, how much money, sex, power, or fame we achieve, these things can never satisfy us because they are empty and false. Satiation masquerades as satisfaction, but when it is experienced, it cannot deliver its tempting guarantee. I told Richard the story of the old man on his deathbed who asked for the secret to happiness. Pardon me, who was asked for the secret to happiness. The old man is said to have replied, for years and years I searched for what people told me would make me happy, and then I just decided to serve life and be happy without it. Happiness is a state of mind, a choice we make, not a result of possessing things or being in control of people or circumstances. People often use the sensation that comes from possessing things as a substitute for happiness, for relationship, and as a way of not dealing with their internalized pain. Look into the eyes of a child. How many times on an energy level must a child be violated to cause him to hate? How much propaganda does it take to grow a child into a person who can kill, into a person who believes that the world is a fearsome place, that life is poverty, relationships hell, and sex is dirty? What does it take for people to believe they are sinners condemned by the creator called love in whose image they are made? Why is there such confusion in the world? For the answer, check out who benefits from all the programmed unconsciousness. I'm not sure if this is what you mean, Richard interjected. But when I think back to being a kid, watching the hypocrites fight and belittle each other, I knew that was not how we were supposed to behave. I kept coming back to my abusers with trust and total love and kept on getting wiped out, Richard said sadly. So you took on their behavior, I asked. What? I wouldn't do that. Are you sure, I queried. I've never been abusive. I've never hit anybody in my life. Have you ever withdrawn love, put down, or tried to control others for your own benefit? Have you ever used anger, money, things to manipulate others into behaving the way you wanted, I inquired. Have you ever withheld love from yourself? Well, yes, but, but that's not abuse, he said, looking defensive. Think back to being the kid that kept loving those that abused him. He only wanted one thing, to be loved. How did he feel when love was withheld and he was manipulated with money, threats, and put-downs? 
I asked that quietly, aware that some very tender feelings were starting to surface in Richard. And breathe. How did I feel, abused and alone, he replied. I sensed tears just under the surface. Tears that had been held inside for a long time. It feels to me like there might be a lot of sadness, grief, and then cried tears waiting to let loose, Richard. I was taught it was wrong to cry. His voice cracked as he tried to hide his sadness. That's another reality with which we've been brainwashed. Macho doesn't work. If we can't accurately feel our feelings, we're out of touch with an important guidance system. Recall the operating principle here. If I'm in pain, I'm in error. Relationship is dead in the glamour industry's definition of love. Have you ever felt used as a sexual object and then been thrown away? Anyone who buys into the common media definition of love becomes a sexual object in their own mind and in the minds of others. And of course, like other objects, they're thrown away after use, I added. I've been on both sides of that scenario, Richard said sadly, and I don't understand why it has to be that way. I would love to be in a true, honest, and real relationship Perhaps that's impossible until I straighten out some of my conflicting realities. I think you're right. We tend to live exactly what we've learned. And if we've been used and abused, it takes work to live differently. Relationships are a wondrous place for nurturing, support, and healing if we can remove the confusing and conflicting realities we've hooked into them. My experience of people who reject or cannot form long-term relationships if they, if they have too much pain in their relationship file and they have to keep on the move or they'll need to face what's hidden within themselves. I've been on the run too long, Richard chimed in. Who promotes this insanity? Why is there so much confusion in the world, he asked. To answer that, notice who receives the benefit of a twisted understanding. Anyone who distorts the truth to gain something for themselves is in so much pain and lives in such inward poverty that they cannot live honestly. They think they must manipulate to have anything for themselves to survive. Have you ever noticed that the promoter of the idea that love is self-sacrifice always has their hand out, and those who feed on abusing others push the idea that love is the gracious acceptance of their abuse? Those who promote love as sex have a lot more sex objects of whom to take advantage and those with the victim mentality get to benefit of playing out the role to which they are dedicated and addicted, I added. I'm not quite keeping up with everything you're saying, but I get its importance. I suppose I have to clean up some of the clouds I've allowed my mind to accept and build more brain cells about what love really is before I'll fully grasp it. However, you've got my attention again. What is love? I don't know what it is, came my unexpected reply. What? We're having this discussion about love, and you can't even tell me what it is? Well, I didn't say I don't have any ideas, Richard. I just hesitate to reduce reduce such an important matter to words. Words are too small for such a topic. In Aramaic, love is what we are. It is the stuff of human existence. Without it, we're not human. We're reduced to less than animal status. 
In the Aramaic scriptures, we're told that we are made in the image and likeness of the Creator and that the Creator is love. And so we start there with a sort of an intellectual definition of love, but then imagine holding a newborn child. Close your eyes for a moment. If you've ever held a newborn, go back to the moment where you held that newborn. And the experience you're now having is that of love. You'll notice it's not an intellectual concept. It's not something you think through. It's something that if you had the experience, you just tap into that state of being. So our offering is that love is the stuff we're made of. It's what we are. And we come into the world fully formed as love. And then the world starts to put its thumbprints on us. And those thumbprints tend to take over our awareness and the active presence of love, the activity of a human life is lost. This whole body of work is about getting back to the place where we can be that space of love. It's not something we do to each other. It's a state of being. It's what we are. And when we function out of that state of being, then there's a certain way that we'll behave. But the behavior doesn't capture the being. The behavior comes from being when being is present. There are many people who want to make a noun out or a verb out of love. And it's something we do to each other. And so someone gets trapped in the idea and in the cycle of, well, if I just do this behavior and I call it love, then I am love. But all behavior is empty and void if the active presence of love isn't there. And so a really powerful exercise to do is to just sit face-to-face with someone One person say, I'll be light. One person say, I'll be peace for the purposes of this exercise. And then light, we're going to ask you to close your eyes and we're going to ask you to tap into the deepest, clearest love that you can find in you. And as you tap into that, intensify it. And then having intensified it, when you're ready, open your eyes and send it out through your eyes to peace, your partner. Peace we suggest that you sit with your eyes open and wait for your partner to send, and then just put your hand up in front of their face and see what, if anything, they are emanating from their eyes. You know, if they were shooting out water, you want to check out what the temperature is. When your partner's intensified that love within and they open their eyes and they're sending, check out and see what, if anything, they're sending. And what will happen as you practice with this exercise is that you will learn to be a space of love when maybe things that are crazy are going on around you. I've been doing this work now for almost 50 years. I started when I was four, so we got a lot of years. we got eternity to go with it yet. And about 25 or so years ago, I started looking back over the previous years at what is it? What what creates this process of this absolutely monumental healing that occurs? 
you know, somebody who has this totally permanent disease condition, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationship, been through a dozen relationships, financial difficulties, whatever. What is it that happens that changes that dynamic? And here's what became clear to me. Looking back over all the years that I'd worked with people and what made that shift occur. And that is that, one, there was conscious, active, present love in the space. And this little exercise that I just gave you. Once you've done it, once love, you've sent peace. Then reverse roles, peace, you become the sender. Love, you become the receiver. And just practice creating that space in yourself, tapping into the truth of being. Intensify the presence of that in your awareness and open your eyes and send it to your partner. So once you've got that down pat, then as you practice being that space, and here's the other half of the true healing process. When that which has been hidden in you and dissociated from through denial is allowed to surface, and the whole core of the forgiveness process is that when you cancel that goal, which is a driver for your perception, and your perception collapses, then whatever was underneath that perception, let's say somebody's in a state of rage, The driver for their rage is the goal for George to do this. And when they cancel the goal for George to do this, their projection that George is the problem in their life collapses, and they're able to drop into a deeper, hidden part of the mind and access that and bring it forward. And when that part of the mind is brought forward in the active presence of love, That's when healing happens. That's when degenerative diseases disappear in an instant. We had a young man who came to Heartland two summers ago, not this summer, but the summer before, former military. He arrived here in a wheelchair. And six weeks later, he was jogging up the hill. And our hills are pretty steep at Heartland. The day before, actually it was about three days before, He did a still point session. He'd gone through several layers of very intense rage. One of the things he got in touch with was being a child of five, having been so abused by his mother, in particular his father had left years before, having been so abused, what he got in touch with was ending up in the emergency room as a result of having beat his own face so badly with his own fist that he needed stitches to heal. That's a lot of rage. And as that rage was able to come up in the presence of love and dissolve and dissolve and dissolve, he did a still point breathing session. And he actually hardly spoke a word for four days. He was in that conscious, active space of love for four days. Now, this is a guy who's former military. This is a guy whose language and demeanor is about violence and his expertise, the, the number one expertise that he shared with the group was that his skill was that of killing people and teaching others to kill. And he was proud of it. He spent about four days connected to this active space of love continuously, hardly spoke a word 
couple mornings later, I was walking down from my house, and here's Michael jogging up the steep hill from Heartland. When he finished out that summer for the first time in 10 years since he'd been discharged from the military, he was able to start to go back into the gym and work out every day and get back in shape. Conscious, active, present love dissolves that in each of us, which is unlike love. That's the essence of the forgiveness process. That's the essence of the worksheet. And the way you access, of course, step four, if you think about step four in the worksheet, it's about tapping into that conscious, active presence of love. Before you go to the core active step, which is the core of forgiveness, canceling the goal, you make sure that love is present in you. And when love is present in you and you cancel the goal, you can just imagine that this this construct in the mind, this picture of somebody else being the problem in your life, collapses in on itself. And when it collapses in on itself, you have the opportunity to bring that which is at the root of what has collapsed forward in the presence of love. And those two things can't occupy the same space. And that which is based in hostility or fear dissolves. And as it dissolves, it literally changes cellular chemistry and brings healing. Every cell is designed to be plugged into the active presence of love 24-7-365. And so the work is about hammering out the thumbprints of hostility, fear, rage, guilt, grief, judgment, pain that have been placed upon us that have knocked out our awareness of love. So practice with that love exchange experience with each other. And as you do, you will strengthen your ability to be that space of conscious, active, present love. And as you breathe, that which is less than love in you will begin to dissolve. And you get back to being a human being. How cool is that? So that's what here, we're here to support. And and when you're in that space where hostility or fear governs, you have to be willing to recognize that hostility and fear means that. It only means one thing, that your mind is using corrupt data to generate or construct its realities. Whenever hostility or fear is present, the mind is using corrupt data. Corrupt data, however, cannot stay in its integrated state in the presence of love. It simply begins to dissolve. And whatever the disease is, I don't care if it's relationship, financial, mental, emotional, the most horrible degenerative disease on the planet, bring active present love to the cell that's been disconnected to love and gone into a disease condition and the cell will instantly begin to return itself to hell. And of course, when you're in a support group, one of the uh, the awesome pieces of being in a support group is that literally whatever your mind is generating its realities out of, it is activating and resonating an energy consistent with those realities. So if we live in a world where, you know, the average conversation is about the, you know, the the hate, the fear, the latest violence, the latest viciousness, the put-downs, the sarcasm, 
People whose perceptions are based in that, perception is a construct, and every construct comes from an energy field that's held within us. So that energy field radiates literally a measurable wave that impacts everything around it. So someone whose perception is in hostility or fear is continuously spraying hostility or fear into their own cellular structure and onto the people that they look at and that they're interacting with. When I began to learn to stand as a space of active love, no matter what's happening in my world, what occurs in that space is that my perception is constructed from love, and I now am spraying the energy of love on the people that I'm interacting with and that are around me. I guarantee you that everybody in your world that you spray hostility or fear on, they are acids that burn and it hurts and people don't like it. If they have matching energies, then they will hurt as a result of the resonance from what you're spraying on them. But when you get into a room full of people who are spraying love on you, and that's what your support group is about, when you get people who have some idea of what it is to hold that space of active love, even if they're not perfect at it, and I don't know anybody that it is, is perfect at it, and I include myself. But as each person practices with that tool, and that's a part of the discipline of the group, then when rage, guilt, grief, hate, fear comes up for one person, when the reason for that driving addiction surfaces, and you've got a whole room full of people that are spreading love on you, that begins to dissolve that which is dis-ease and disorder in you. And healing happens. It's the most amazing thing. When you're in hostility or fear, you've got to love truth enough to recognize that your mind is using corrupt data and whatever it's telling you isn't true. The problem for most people is that they generate a reality based on hostility or fear, which is always by definition a lie because it's based in corrupt data, but they believe their lie. You know, there's some interesting Harvard research that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, the max amount of data that can go into conscious awareness is nine bits. If we fill the nine-bit mind with a lie, something based in hostility or fear, and we call that lie truth, then truth bounces off of us because there's no room for truth to get into our awareness. That person then is living in blockage of truth. The person who will defend to the hilt their hate, their fear, their anger, their rage, their guilt, their grief, their sadness, they're in misery, but they proclaim that this is the truth. And they're living in blockage of truth. The antidote for blockage of truth is love of truth. If I'm in hostility or fear, can I stand in a space where I love the truth enough to let my hostility and fear be replaced with something loving? And when I do, what happens is I literally change my cellular chemistry. You know, there's some interesting research being done in the arena of uh, 
of cellular biology. And what they're showing, you know, Candace Pert, former head of brain bio research at the National Mental Institute of Health, bless her heart, she passed away last year. She was a sweet lady. Head of brain bio research, here's what she showed. showed you think a thought. And the thought produces a molecule called a neuropeptide. The neuropeptide circulates around in your structure until it finds a cell with a receptor site that matches, and it lands on the cell. Now, what the cell biologists are saying is that then the cell replicates the neuropeptide. I have a slight difference of opinion. I don't think the cell replicates the neuropeptide. A very limited aspect of the neuropeptide inserts itself into the cell energetically and it shows up in the cell as what we call chemistry. And if it is the chemistry of hate, fear, rage, guilt, grief, and pain, then the cell begins to degenerate. It goes into a diseased condition because there's an energy that's been inserted into it that doesn't belong in it. By the way, in the ancient Aramaic, the word sin is an archery term. When you fire at the target and you miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yells sin. It means you're off the mark. When you put hate or fear into a cell, you're off the mark. It's sin. It begins the degeneration of cell. Back 2,000 years ago, the physiologist Yeshua knew exactly what he was talking about when he said the wages of sin is death. The result of engaging in energies that are off the mark is you start to destroy your own cellular structure. And you get enough of that destroyed and you die. We do it to ourselves. I love the acronym SIN, self-inflicted nonsense. It's time to stop. It's time to plug the cell back into the active presence of love and get it, give it what it's designed for. And it's designed to be plugged into and function out of the active presence of love. And that's where each of us is designed to live. That's where we all started out, and that's where ultimately we must all return. And so I hope that uh, supports the uh, the theme for tonight's uh, support group out in Pahrump, and it will be a delight to hear back from you on uh, on how it fits. And beyond that, let's see if Dr. Tim has anything to share or anything to add to those thoughts. So Tim, you might just want to introduce yourself to uh, to the support group in Pahrump, Nevada, and uh, Dr. Steve Andrati and his wife, Claudia, who are now doing a weekly support group. For some time, they were doing it every two weeks, but they've bumped it up to uh, every week, and uh, sounds like things are really happening in a very exciting way in their medical clinic there. Well, it's delightful to hear. Uh, congratulations on the support group. And um, I'm Tim Hayes, and I'm a psychologist in Crystal Lake, and I've been working with these tools for somewhere between 10 and 12 years. I've lost track. And um, the end of this summer, we're finishing the 10th year of our support group. And last um, August, I started a second support group. So I have one on Tuesdays and one on Thursdays. And um, and I really don't know what to say to add anything to what you said about love. Um, <clears throat> it, we had a support group last night, and we were talking about um, we were watching the first half of your newest lecture, What is the World? And it stirred up a lot of thoughts for people and people trying to make a, a distinction between the world they create in their mind with perception and the actual world that is out there for all of us to interact with. And of course, 
it's very difficult to talk about these things because the word is not the thing. The name isn't the person. So we had a very in-depth discussion about how well, I mean, several people thought you were quite on in this lecture and how well you made the differentiation between the small w world, which is the world I create with my perception inside my own mind, and how that can be so dramatically different from everybody else who's creating their own little w, small w world inside their mind, and the capital W world that the creator created, which is what we all live, move, and have our being in, which essentially is created from this creative life force, the creative energy of love, God himself, herself, however you want to say it. So it was a fabulous discussion, and then we talked about a person who had a, a worksheet difficulty. She'd done two or three worksheets on an issue and wasn't making much progress, and so we helped her refine her goals, which of course will collapse a different part of her mind and introduce her to something else. And I talked about a piece of work I did this past week where I had somebody come in and talk about um, someone they know very very close to them who committed suicide a couple weeks ago, and they talked about it with uh, almost a complete lack of emotion. And that triggered this disconnect and upset in me, and when I went to do the work on that, I discovered it was related to the time in my past when I know somebody who was very close to me who just got very detached from very intense emotional issues, and it, so it, it was another piece of work for me to do, to dismantle the upset within me around somebody else being so detached from important emotional issues. So that's my offering for today. It's a delight to be here, and um, as always, I'm, I'm anxious to see if anybody else has a question or a hand up. We do not have anybody with their hand up or any questions in the chat room. However, I think this we mentioned this yesterday. Oh, I hand just went up, but before I turned them on, um, we mentioned this yesterday, and it fits perfectly with the topic of love. And also, the lady who had called in and wanted to know, you know, how she could stand in that space of love when there was atrocities going on, and the people, quote unquote, deserved her rage or whatever. And this is actually on our website. Uh, it's out of The Gentle Art of Blessing, which is actually taken from a book called Return from Tomorrow, written by Dr. George Ritchie. And Ritchie was a doctor with the American troops in World War II, and he took part of the liberation of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany and became acquainted with a Polish prisoner whose nickname was Wild Bill Cody. And, and you can read the whole story on, on our website. Just click on... Uh, put in the search bar choice uh, by love and it'll come up but as a synopsis of it uh, he looked like he was in really good health and you know bright eyes and erect posture and had great energy and all of that and so they just assumed that he had only been in the concentration camp for just a few days or whatever and he was the unofficial camp translate later because he could speak so many different languages and after they got to know him a little bit and was working with the other prisoners and helping them um, you know in their transition back into the world outside the concentration camp 
this gentleman nicknamed Wild Bill, his papers came before them and they realized that he had actually been in the camp for six years. And that, you know, it was it was amazing because he had been in the same, uh, you know, the dirty conditions and the, the starving, you know, not enough to eat and, and uh, all of the things that all the other prisoners had gone through. And they were like, you know, wow, how, you know, how could you still be in such good shape? And he began telling them, you know, uh, he leaned, it says he leaned back in his chair and he said, we lived in the Jewish Jewish section of Warsaw. Said, um, my wife, our two daughters and our three little boys, um, and the Germans reached their street. They lined everyone up against a wall and opened fire with machine guns. I begged to be allowed to die with my family. So here he has watched uh, them be gunned down, his wife and his five children. And But because I spoke German, they put me in a work group. He paused for a moment, perhaps seeing his wife and children again. I decided right then whether to let myself hate these soldiers who had done this that would have been an easy decision, really. But I was a lawyer, and in my practice, I had seen too often what hate could do to people's minds and bodies. Hate is what just killed the six people who mattered the most to me. I decided then that I would spend the rest of my life, whether it was a few days or many years, loving every person that I came into contact with. Loving every person was the power that kept this man well. His decision was not made out of any religious belief but because he had witnessed how love regenerates and how hate destroys. And my offering there would be that, and we've got, again, you know, we have to work with the language we've got. If he had the language, he'd have probably said, I decided that I was going to live as love, not love everybody, which is, you know, the limit of our cultural language, but I chose to live as this true being that I am. And if if he were asked, he'd probably say, and that's what kept myself healthy and alive. That's what kept me strong and uh, and vital was that energy in me as opposed to um, the the verb trying to turn the state of being into a verb. It's a power supply. It's an actual energy that, empowers the cell and empowers human beings as the true active presence of love to live in that space, whatever somebody else is doing. Exactly. Cool. Let's go to our caller. Go with our caller, yeah. Area code 702, you're on the air. Who do we have? Hello there. How are you guys doing? This is Claudia from Perumph in Las Vegas. Well, hello, Claudia. Hi there, young lady. We were just talking about you. <laughs> I For those hear who haven't met Claudia like... before, this is Claudia and Dr. Androcki, the ones who have the weekly support group at, uh, at uh, Partners in Wellness in Pahrump. Yeah, it's uh, so we've been uh, having a couple of issues with uh, some of our members of our support group. They've uh, a couple of them have gone through uh, losses in their in their family members. Some of them have gone through financial mm-hmm. problems, uh, legal problems, all kinds of different things. Of course, just like everybody else. Um, and it's a matter of how we can guide them through with our support so that since our society and our culture has made it so easy to be sad and to grieve and 
to hold anger and all, all all of those the negative emotions in ourselves um when something like that happens and one of the things that we've had people say well it's normal to feel that way it's normal to feel sad when you lose somebody it's normal to feel angry when they go away in an unexpected sudden way um but for us trying to explain it to them saying that's what society calls normal, but that's not what normal being is supposed to be. And being able to hold the space of love for them and say, how about we take a moment now and send our, our energies to them and being able to do it in a positive way is what we're looking for at this point. Is it being able to guide our, our, our support group to to learn how to hold on to that space of love when everybody seems to see that Sadness is supposed to be the normal feeling. And that's where we're at to be able to help them in, in being able to hold that space of love for people. Awesome. And, you know, I think a, a good uh, point uh, for distinguishing between the two is to recognize that it has become normal, but it's not natural. Right. Okay. It's become the norm. But. The natural thing is to stand in the presence of this activity of love. And my my take is that if someone can't be the space of love for someone who passes, it's because they have a lot of unresolved issues with that person. Mm -hmm. And their pain and their turmoil is a reflection or a projection of their own unresolved energies. And when they clean that up, you know, they'll simply be that space. Now, they may have sadness in themselves from generations of loss to clean up, but Mm -hmm. once that's cleaned up, then one is the space of aliveness and joy that supports this person who's passed in their journey and moving on as opposed to the the focus on what's unresolved within oneself. It's just the difference of night and day. And because it hasn't uh, been the tools for doing that haven't been put forward in the culture, it seems like that's an impossibility, but it really is possible right. and it's really powerful. I don't know, I don't know if maybe Julie Haverstick happens to be on the show, but uh, Julie has um, been with both of her parents holding their hands when they passed and because she's really done her work. And, Julie, if you happen to be out there, maybe you'd hit one and share a little bit of that. She has shared it on the show before, but just had beautiful, powerful, sweet experiences and yeah. and in fact is is Julie there, Jeannie, by chance? Hold on, I'm looking. <laughs> one of one of the examples that I shared was from my, my own experiences when my grandmother died of uh, a few years ago. There was uh, just uh holding the space of love and I can honestly say that that was the case for my mother. My mother of course had a lot of grief I was going through just because of the unresolved issues of not being there for many years by her side, helping the family. And for me, there was just it was just peace. I didn't feel any anything other than peace from what I can uh, recall, uh, which is totally opposite of when my uncle passed away. I had a lot of anger that came up, and that was where my emotions were at. Was more of that he died in a similar way as my grandfather. Uh, due to his drinking and his stuff, it's like more of like, how long is it going to take for our family to learn that right. addictions that we hold on to? And that was more of the anger that I was holding on to. And that was more of my grief 
when he passed away. It wasn't of the fact that he passed away. It was all of my thoughts and emotions that were attached to to all of my past history. And that's one exactly. of the things that I that I explained to them is like if you don't have any unresolved issues with the person that is passing, then you will be at peace with their passing. If you have okay. regrets and you have things that you wish you could have done differently or or anything like that, then yes, you're gonna have those negative emotions come up. I guess one of our members is going through a very young person passing. And when something like that happens, I haven't, I've experienced that once before, but I was very young. I don't quite remember in regards to one of my cousins passing away, uh, whether why my my emotions were at the time. Um, But it's going to be something that I I haven't dealt with, and I am looking for guidance on how to be able to to see when, when a young person passes, so to be able to help the, the members that are left behind. Right. And, you know, another perspective for a young person passing is is that perhaps that young person has done what they came to do and it's time for them to go on with their eternal lives. And, of course, mm-hmm. we live in a culture where we've had, uh, you know, I talked earlier about the thumbprints, where we've had all kinds of ideas of how it should be and, uh and, and ideas of loss and, and, you know, a short life and, and all that goes with that, which when we resolve it, once again, will be that space of love. That doesn't mean I jump and mm-hmm. jump up and down and say, hooray, you know, somebody right. died. It just means that I can maintain my connectedness to my space of love and be the support for that person who has passed to move on to the next level. hmm Hmm. That definitely, for yeah. sure. That's one of the yeah. things that I have I have thought about. The the other question in regards to holding the space of love, we have the, the during the sessions throughout the the class throughout the support group. It's two hours that we do it, um, and through when people are starting to go through this stuff, we've had actually people request. It's like, could we be the space of love for 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 this person right now? Can we take a little bit and just hold the space and. And my question is how I, I heard you talk about the the light and the peace with a one on one. It would that be able to be done on a group level, just being able to send our energies over to one and how we can guide them in a way to be able to bring that space of love in that moment, no matter what situation that we're talking about, whether it's a loss or financial or legal or whatever it is. Absolutely. To be able to guide them, that, like what kind of words can we use for them? It's like, okay, have think of a happy memory. Think of holding that newborn baby. Is there anything that has worked best for? I mean, of course, we're not we're not cookie cutter people, so everything works differently sure, right. for each person. Of course. Uh, but is there anything that that you suggest that we can do to help each person bring that space of love forward? Well, you know, when we do an intensive early in the intensive, we'll do that love exchange exercise. And then what we'll do is we'll suggest that people do a love exchange with everybody in the intensive every day. And so when that becomes a practice, one gets to the point where first nature is to just stand as that space of love, whatever's happening inside of ourselves, whatever's happening in our environment. And so, you know, one of the things you might want to do is is maybe start the support group out with 
the love exchange experience, and then invite people to do it on a continuing basis. Do it in the mirror with themselves every day. Do it with somebody at home until it just becomes first nature. And then when somebody in the group has some kind of trauma come up, and oftentimes when one person in the group has a trauma come up, it might trigger two or three others, then everybody else is holding the space and just literally energetically spraying the love on them. And and Mm -hmm. that spraying of love is what dissolves the hostility and fear because the hostility and fear is all based in falsehood. And so it literally starts to fall apart when it is exposed to active love. So that love exchange is one of the best ways I know. And then, of course, getting people to practice it. Do it on a regular basis so it just becomes automatic on a second's notice. If I notice something going on, I can just kick right into that state and make sure that I'm really, truly connected to that state of being that I am. Right. Awesome. Well, this definitely and Julie, helps. Julie is on, so we've got a few minutes. Maybe she can add to that about the loss. Julie, are you there? I am here. Yay. Yeah. Did, were you, did you hear the earlier part of the conversation about... Uh, about the, the passing of a child and, and loss, and I had suggested that uh, you might share a little bit about your experience with uh, being there for your parents' passing. Yeah, being there with my parents' passing was quite different than what I thought it would be. Um, with my mom, I was there, you know, 24 hours a day, nine o'clock, except missing maybe one hour to go home and take a shower and get food. And she's um, right next to his bed. But I wanted, you know, this wonderful spiritual experience, and it appeared to me that she was awake most of the time. Well, after four days, I fell asleep one evening, and then the nurse awakened me and said, um, "It's over." And I looked at my mom, and you know, she had um, obviously left her body. So I had a little. From- a little disappointment that I wasn't, you know, awake when she left. And then uh, I had uh, the nurse left and I was alone with her. And then I received this intuitive message that said, feel the energy. And with that, this, like, force felt like um, air went right through me. And then I thought, wow, you know. And then the message was, that's your mom in her true form. And I felt so blessed about that um, experience that when um, that happened, instead of feeling a loss that my mom had left her body, I felt a gain, and I felt that she gave me her highest blessing. And I was actually in a really good space. Um, I, you know, did all the things I needed to do. And then I went over to see my dad, and my dad also said that he felt that she had come by to see him, that he felt her presence. So that's the experience I had with my mother, that it was um, it was almost like, you know, you, you know, you think about birth and, and, you know, them coming into the world. Well, maybe there's a birth of them leaving and they're being born into another dimension. And then with my, mom, my dad... I was actually there holding his hand and when he left and he chose to start doing that connected breathing and he was breathing and he said he wanted to leave. And although I was crying because I knew I, I sensed he was actually going to leave, 
And as we held hands, we I just encouraged him to continue to breathe and go be with God because that was his request. And I said, go ahead, Dad, go ahead and be with God. And, and he kept breathing, and then all of a sudden he just stopped breathing. Well, you know, the nurse came in and checked him, and, you know, she'd be glad that he had, um, you know, died or, or left. But I didn't experience him. You know, I you know I had already experienced my mom, so I thought, well, I kept saying inside of me, Dad, where are you? Dad, where are you? You know, because, you know, here I had been holding his hands when he left. And, um, you know, for a while I, I must have asked that about five times, and then I started to receive a, a pain like um, – like in my chest, lower chest, and uh, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm getting this little pain. Then I asked again, and then that pain increased, and that pain increased. And I think I might have asked Dad, where are you, about eight times, and about that time the pain in my chest was pretty strong, and then the message, the intuitive message was, I'm in your heart. And... um, at different times, you know, I feel that pain there, and I just feel that connection to my parents. I really think that we have been taught something totally different about the the death process. We've been taught certain things about the birth process, but maybe we're we're inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was blessed, certainly blessed, especially since our parents are oftentimes our power people. And, you know, it says in one of the commandments, honor thy mother and thy father so that thy days will be long upon the earth. I felt like I honored them. They honored me in return. Sweet. Sweet. Well, thank you for being available to share that, Julie. It's uh, it's always powerful to hear you uh, speak about uh, what you co-created with both your mom and your dad in their passing. So, Thank you for sharing it, and I'm sure it will be an inspiration for others. And we are down to the last minute or so, so we're going to have to close the show out. Uh, we certainly hold the space for the uh, the support group in Pahrump. And, uh, Claudia, we're delighted you got to call in. Give Stephen a hug for us and ask him to give you one for, for, for us from him. And uh, we appreciate it, and we look forward to the next time we get face-to-face. And in the meantime, everybody... Bring a stranger to the show tomorrow. Remember, there are archives of this show that will be available shortly, and you can go listen to it again or share it with somebody else. You know, Go to the uh, the website, to pick up the link, and send it to somebody else to give them a listen, especially if it touches issues that, uh, that someone you know in your world might be dealing with. And bring a stranger to the show tomorrow. Create the best day yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's actually Monday, and Dr. Tim and Michelle are going to cover for us because we're going to be in a workshop on Monday. You all have a blessed weekend. Bye-bye.